This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is grappling with comparisons. In the first half, J.B. Hawes shares his address, Wrestling with Comparisons. Then in the second half, Merrill J. Christensen speaks on comparing, competing, and individual worth. In our church history classes, we talk often about the importance and blessing of openness and candor. So in a nod to that spirit of openness, I feel compelled to admit candidly that when I first received this invitation from Vice President Richardson's office, I molded over for a day and then wrote an apologetic email asking if there was any way I could be excused at this time. A couple of things factored into my sense that I just didn't want to do a devotional right now. First, I've always sort of dreamed that my debut on BYU TV would be some kind of guest cameo spot on Studio C, and I just wasn't ready to give up on my dream. Um, if any of you know me, and if any of you know Studio C, you know that my whole life would be a treasure trove of material for new awkward avoidance Viking sketches. <laughs> Second, and this only held slightly more sway in my decision-making process, I just didn't know what I would say at the devotional, and that really weighed on me. I thought about all the past devotionals that have been so memorable. I could start running through a list right here of BYU devotionals that still stick with me. Plus, I rationalized that the intervening weeks might be too busy to put in the preparation time that this deserved. I cared too much about BYU devotionals to get this wrong. Vice President Richardson sent back a very gracious and understanding email agreeing to let me off the hook, and I felt no guilt. The next morning, though, a new thought wiggled its way into my consciousness. It was one of those inner dialogue moments, those moments that somehow we can just sense seem to originate outside of ourselves. Here's how I would express that thought. Are you really going to tell me that you are going to pass up the chance to put in the time to think about something and wrestle with something and learn something just because you know it is going to require work and focus? Why would you pass up on the chance to learn something that you need to learn, to put in the work so that you can put down onto paper things that now might only be swimming around vaguely in your head? And then there came to me a Francis Bacon quote that a former professor of mine was wont to repeat, writing makes an exact man. Somehow I just knew that I needed to learn something with more exactness, with more precision, with the exercise of writing it down. My guess is that many of you at the end of our time together might wish that the lesson I had learned was to leave well enough alone when we receive gracious and understanding emails letting us off the hook when we have nothing to say. But I no longer was in a place where it felt like I could do that. The truth of the situation had been laid bare and I knew I should do this. But I still didn't know what I was going to say. I just couldn't shake the feeling of how good past devotionals have been or the feeling of wondering if I could measure up. This might be my one shot, I thought, on the off chance, of course, that the Studio C thing doesn't pan out. What would people think? What if the best thing my family members could say to me afterward is, hey, I loved how the BYU TV makeup artist did a good job of making your eyebrows look smaller. How would my devotional talk compare in the field of BYU devotional talks? And in a flash of recognition, I was suddenly pulled up short. There it was. That was it. I needed to spend some time wrestling to the ground this vexatious tendency to compare. This tendency is something that I think about all the time because I do it all the time. But even that statement is a bit misleading. Saying I do it all the time is like saying I breathe all the time. It just happens without me thinking about it. It can almost feel reflexive, almost natural. And that's the point. That's why it is so vexatious, because we know from Mosiah 3, left to our natural state, we struggle to yield to the enticements of the Holy Spirit. We are not where God wants us to be. We are not what he knows we can be. We're in opposition to him at cross purposes to his plan. But also because these comparisons seem to happen so naturally, I hope we all feel like fellow travelers on this. So what would the Holy Spirit entice us to do? Where can we yield on this? 
First, the problem. Let me outline it by revealing how I used to envision the scriptural narrative in Doctrine and Covenants 7, with some admitted literary license here. This section adds important detail to the account of John 21 and retells how John expressed his heartfelt wish to have power over death, that he may live and bring souls unto Christ until Jesus comes again. We learn in Doctrine and Covenants 7 that Peter, on the other hand, desired that he might speedily come unto the Lord in his kingdom. And here's how I've imagined this scenario playing out. This is my mental screenplay of the scriptural story. Peter approaches the Savior a bit hesitantly and quietly asks, what was John's heartfelt wish? Peter learns that John desired to stay on the earth until the second coming to preach the gospel. I can see Peter keeping on a forced smile and saying, wow, that's wonderful. But in his mind, he's really thinking, I am so dumb. Why didn't I ask for that? Why didn't I even think of that? John is so much more righteous than me, not to mention he's a faster runner than me. Why why do I always have to be so impetuous and jump in first on everything? And in this reading, one might assume that Doctrine and Covenants 7 to 5 would read like this. I say unto thee, Peter, your desire to come speedily into my kingdom was a good desire, but my beloved John has desired that he might do more, or a greater work yet among men than what you have done, thou slacker. Uh, I can still remember where I was, however, when I realized that, of course, the verse did not read that way. Here's how it really reads. I say unto thee, Peter, this was a good desire, but my beloved has desired that he might do more, or a greater work yet among men, than what he has done before. I feel this with the force of truth. Our perfect, loving God makes no horizontal comparisons in the story. In this verse, Jesus only compared John with John's former self, John with old John. He only compares Peter with old Peter, with former Peter, and he only compares me with old me. A more contemporary example from Elder Packer's time as a mission president. I needed a new assistant, Elder Packer wrote, and had prayed much about the matter. I then called zone conferences where I met and interviewed every missionary, always with the thought in my mind, is this the man? The answer finally came, this is the man. He was appointed. He had been permitted to come on a mission only after some considerable shaping up to become eligible. After the announcement, one of his own leaders came to see me privately. He came from the same community in the West as did the new assistant. He was obviously disturbed. His first question was, do you really know the elder you've appointed as your assistant? Yes, elder, I know all you know about him and a good deal more was my answer. Why then was he appointed your assistant? I pondered for a moment and then said, elder, why don't you ask the question that you came to ask? What do you mean? Ask the question that is really on your mind, I encouraged. But I did, he said. No, I said, there's another question. The thing that is on your mind is not, why did you appoint him? It is, why did you not appoint me? Now, please understand, Elder Packer says, I thought his unexpressed question to be a very logical and sensible one. I had sympathy for this young man and admired him greatly for his courage to speak. If you should ask why you were not chosen, I said, I would have to answer, I do not know, Elder. I only know that he was chosen. Perhaps he may fail, but at least I know he is the one with the combination of talents and ability and qualities best calculated to get done what the office needs at the moment. This is no reflection upon you. You may yet preside over him and many above him. You may be his bishop or his stake president. You may preside over the church. I do not know. But his call is no reflection upon you. Do not be injured by it. Go back to work and serve the Lord. Sustain him, I counseled. Your contest is not with him, but with yourself. I need to read that golden line again. Your contest is not with him, but with yourself. Or put another way, here's Elder Holland on this. God doesn't measure our talents or our looks. He doesn't measure our professions or our possessions. He cheers on every runner, calling out that the race is against sin, not against each other. These are such important statements. They're the type of statements that I want emblazoned on my mind, that I want written on the fleshy tables of my heart. Just repeating a sentence like, your contest is not with him, it is only with yourself, or the race is against sin, not against each other, feels like verbal aloe vera on our sunburned souls. It soothes, it cools, we feel tense muscles relax. We know this, don't we? We feel this deeply. 
But if we know this, if it feels so settling, why is it so hard to remember this when we leave the safe confines of a BYU devotional or the reassuring embrace of our wise fathers or mothers or siblings or friends who have just reminded us of these truths? Why is it still so hard and what do we do? If it's like breathing, what do we do? What can we do? Well, for one thing, we can be mindful. One aspect of mindfulness, and this is certainly from my novice's perspective of mindfulness, but one aspect of mindfulness is to pay attention to your breathing and good things happen. So first, let's draw attention to this. Be mindful of it. Think about it. Sit with it. And here are some things we notice. Mortality and modernity seem to be especially well designed to give us the customized curriculum. Elder Maxwell's wonderful phrase. The customized curriculum we need to confront our tendency to compare. And as we confront this, we sense that comparing can lead to all kinds of trouble. On the one hand, it can breed arrogance. It can breed conceit. It can breed disdain and contempt. Thinking of the profound things that Arthur Brooks said at commencement two weeks ago. It can breed self-satisfaction and complacency and apathy. On the other hand, it can breed despair. It can breed hopelessness. It can breed feelings of worthlessness and shame. A pretty potent instrument for sin and misery, I'd say. Third Nephi 6 presents a situation where Satan's success in getting those saints to be puffed up in comparisons and ranks and distinctions meant that the church began to be broken up. No wonder that Alma said that he sinned in his wish to be an angel. I always thought that was a bit of poetic hyperbole on Alma's part. After all, who could fault the desire to have the voice of an angel to cry repentance to every people? But maybe he was on to something. Maybe he understood deeply that comparisons, which then can fuel envying and coveting or self-loathing and the paralysis of inaction, can really be just that debilitating, can keep us from playing the vital role that has been allotted unto us. And so he needed to call it like he saw it. He was sinning in his wish. Can't we just hear echoes of President Benson's classic discourse on pride, which is always worthy of a reread? Pride is essentially competitive in nature, President Benson wrote. He also quoted C.S. Lewis. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. Let's pause for a dose of reality here. I can imagine my own reaction to all of this if I were sitting in this audience. I can hear myself thinking, well, thank you very much. Now not only do I feel badly about myself because of all these comparisons with everyone around me, I feel even worse because of the realization that I'm sinning when I make these comparisons. That's just super. I wish I'd stayed in bed. If any of this is coming across in that way, I get it. But I think that another way to look at this would be to see it as empowering. We can take Nephi's approach. We can say, awake my soul, no longer droop in sin. Why should I give way to temptations that the evil one have place in my heart and destroy my peace and afflict my soul? We can notice how false these comparisons most often are. That is, they are based often on falsehoods, on faulty premises, both of others' making and our own making. That's worth noting, worth confronting, worth constantly reminding ourselves. Korahor's exchange with Alma rightfully gets a lot of attention in church lessons and discourses. Alma 30 is a rich and layered chapter, but I think one of Korahor's assertions does not get attention for just how demonstrably false it is. Here's that assertion as reported in Alma 30, 17. Korahor asserted that, quote, every man prospered according to his genius and that every man conquered according to his strength, unquote. That assertion is simply not true. And when we're honest with ourselves, we know it's not true. What I mean is that no one can legitimately say in the ultimate sense, I prospered because of my genius or I conquered because of my strength. We know that in reality, so many variables are involved. Where we are born, when we are born, our race, our gender, the schools available to us, the education level of our parents, genetic markers like height and muscle mass, the timing of our application and the pool of applicants for a program or a job. So many things that are out of our control, all of these factors impact the degree to which we even have the opportunity to prosper or conquer. 
there have been many geniuses who have not had equal opportunity to prosper and many strong men and women who have not had equal opportunity to conquer. And for that matter, what does prospering or conquering even definitively look like? We have to be careful here. This does not mean that we simply acquiesce to biological determinism or circumstantial determinism, nor wallow in defeatism. Agency is also a reality and an incomparable endowment. But can we see why comparisons just are not fair to us or to others? There are too many variables involved. That's why degree of difficulty matters in Olympic diving and in life, as Elder Maxwell would remind us. All of this is to say that we should certainly be more compassionate with everyone because we do not know what burdens they are carrying, what life loads are weighing them down. And we should certainly be more humble when we succeed. Is it any wonder that King Benjamin asked, can you say aught of yourselves? I answer you, nay. I wonder how many doors have been opened in my life because I grew up in Hooper. I can take no credit for the golden ticket of being from that beautiful beachfront town on the shores of the Great Salt Lake. Uh, but we really must acknowledge that privilege is real. Prejudice is real. Injustice is real. Remember that Korahor was anti-Christ and the demonstrably false statement that we prosper according to our genius seems to be another way of denying that we need Christ or need anyone. Think of the punchline of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We need to be reminded that it is by grace we are saved. It is the gift of God, lest any of us should boast. On the beautiful flip side, then, we can trust that the Lord's grace is sufficient to ultimately right every injustice, to make up for every loss, and to make weak things become strong. When we come face to face with our weakness, Ether 1227 is a good place to turn. We're reminded that the Lord gives unto men and women weakness that they may be humble. Not weaknesses, but weakness. Weakness. A shared universal condition. Mortality. Mortality makes us humble again and again and again. And I might submit that this tendency to compare is part of mortality. is universal to lesser and greater degrees, of course. When we are humbled by that recognition, we can trust that through the Lord's all-sufficient grace, weak things can become strong. And that's ultimately the only place we can turn. The only name by which salvation can come. I realize again and again that I cannot overcome this on my own. I realize again and again, I do not have to. What Elder Rasband reminded religious educators three months ago is the same message that has been weighing on my heart, and I feel inadequate to deliver it with the forcefulness that it deserves. Elder Rasband titled his talk, Jesus Christ is the Answer. This is the message we all need to hear. In this human dilemma, Jesus is the answer. His teachings, his example, his power to effect a change of heart, a lasting, saving change of heart in each of us thought or two about his teachings. When we find ourselves worried about where we measure up as we compare ourselves with everyone around us, worried about what others think of us, at least we're in good company. I'm so grateful that the gospel writers were honest enough, even in some cases honest enough about themselves, to include passages that show that Jesus' apostles struggled with this. They even squabbled over this. When they asked who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, perhaps the champion of all comparison-motivated questions, Jesus called a little child unto him and said, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This, of course, starts cross-references popping up in our minds. We remember that one of the ways that King Benjamin recommended that we overcome our natural man-slash-natural-woman state is to become as a little child. I have four wonderful children, Parley, Marshall, Truman, and Ashley, and I have learned so many lessons from them. An image that is as vivid today in my mind as it was when it happened a dozen years ago is a backyard game of catch with my two oldest boys, Parley and Marshall. Parley was five or six years old. Marshall was probably two or three. I would throw the football to each of them in turn. Parley was catching the football almost every time. Marshall, not so much. I can see Marshall concentrating, watching the ball, and then missing it every time. 
No matter how I threw the ball, it seemed like it always hit him on the head as it went right through his hands, which were closing for the ball just one beat too early or one beat too late. Luckily, it was a really soft, inflatable football. I got to add that. But here's the thing I'll never forget. Marshall cheered, jumped up and down, squealed in delight. Every time Parley caught it, I could still hear his little voice yelling, good catch, Par, or that was great, Par. And then he would miss the next throw that came to him. But somehow, that didn't dampen his enthusiasm for Parley's success. Somehow, he knew that his contest was not with Parley. He could have joy in Parley's success. So how do we do it? How do we recapture that sense of childlike celebration for the good fortune of others? I think we do that by thinking less about ourselves. That statement calls for so many qualifications. We all have to be on the lookout for the ways that a sincere desire for selflessness can, in some terrible situations, be manipulated into codependency or victimization. Please know that if we see this happening to others around us or to ourselves, we are never called to self-abnegation that harms our mental or physical or emotional well-being. Some of the best things we can do for ourselves or others is to stop abuse of this kind. Remember that Jesus said that we must cut off hands or eyes that offend us, and the Joseph Smith translation makes clear that this cutting off might include so-called friends and family and those we have trusted who are leading us down pernicious paths. These are situations that cannot be ignored. But with that important caveat always in our mind, here's how President Uchtdorf captured what the right kind of selflessness looks like in the best sense. When we see the world around us through the lens of the pure love of Christ, we begin to understand humility. Some suppose that humility is about beating ourselves up. Humility does not mean convincing ourselves that we are worthless, meaningless, or of little value, nor does it mean denying or withholding the talents God has given us. We don't discover humility by thinking less of ourselves. We discover humility by thinking less about ourselves. Or here's how C.S. Lewis said this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Doesn't this description just fit with the image of the Son of God kneeling before weary and confused disciples and washing their feet? Isn't this Jesus while on the cross assigning the duties of a son to John because of Jesus' concern for his heartbroken mother? This is Jesus choosing to be a guest at a publican's house without worrying about the way that his reputation might be harmed in the eyes of murmurers. This is Jesus, immune to the criticisms of people who, if they had lived in today's world, would be making the same sniping judgments in the comment sections of social media posts. This is Jesus, sincerely, wholeheartedly deflecting praise and glorifying his Father. And on and on and on. A brief anecdote from Susan Tanner captures this as beautifully as almost anything I've ever heard. She was serving as the general president of the church's young women organization when she related this in an October 2005 general conference talk. I remember well the insecurities I felt as a teenager, Sister Tanner says, with a bad case of acne. I tried to care for my skin properly. My parents helped me get medical attention. For years, I even went without eating chocolate and all the greasy fast foods around which teens often socialize but with no obvious healing consequences. It was difficult for me at that time to fully appreciate this body which was giving me so much grief. But my good mother taught me a higher law. Over and over she said to me, you must do everything you can to make your appearance pleasing, but the minute you walk out the door, forget yourself and start concentrating on others. That is it. In a beautiful nutshell, that is it. 
Think of all the questions that bombard us on a daily basis. Did I get picked for a leadership position on my mission? Did I score more points than my rival in the basketball game? Did I get the highest score on the test in my class? Was I the one student from BYU who landed the internship? Did I play more flawlessly in my audition than did everyone else? Did my witty comment in Sunday school make more people laugh than my roommate's comment did? If I glance over the treadmill next to mine, will I find that I'm running at a faster pace? And on and on and on. These constantly nipping questions are all about me, 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 and it's exhausting. Doesn't it sound freeing and liberating to think less about ourselves, to not be thinking about ourselves at all, and to do that effortlessly, as naturally as breathing, because it's just who we are? As if the armor of God that we put on is coated in Teflon so that none of this, not flattery, not worry about where we measure up, not insecurities fueled by the lack of retweets, can even possibly stick to us. Jesus is the answer. His teachings, his example, and especially his power to affect this change in our hearts. I'm so thankful for Moroni 748. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified even as he is pure. Amen. Amen, indeed. When we pray with all the energy of heart and we strive to be true followers of Jesus Christ, this pure love of Christ is bestowed on us. It fills us. This matters so much in the specific area of our strivings within. Isn't that a fitting phrase from the hymn, More Holiness, Give Me? Our strivings within. Because charity renders this temptation to compare powerless. That is because filled with charity, which seeketh not our own, we are purified, even as Jesus is pure. One area in which we really need that purifying powder is in our motives. President Benson wisely said about pride that it is in our motives for the things we do where the sin is manifest. I've heard historian Richard Bushman say this so forcefully. When our motives are pure, when we act out of a pure heart, when our only intent is to bless others, prideful comparisons are defanged. They have no bearing in our thinking. When we are filled with charity, we will be like the Savior. Why was this so natural for him? Because simply he knew who he was, and he knows you, and he knows me. He truly knows us. He truly sees who we are. And that changes everything. Just entertaining the question of whether or not Jesus compared himself to those around him, took comfort in where he stood on the ladders of success and in who was beneath him, becomes instantly ridiculous. We remember that this is the Savior who aims to make us, in the language of the Doctrine and Covenants 88, equal with him. There is no jealousy, no competition. If the temptation to compare reared its head, he gave no heed to it, and we can be like him. The truth is, we're going to walk out of this room and right back into the pressure cooker. Universities, the job market, social media, oh, social media, even church basketball, all are set up systemically, almost intrinsically, to force comparisons upon us. But that doesn't mean that we have to give heed. A few years ago, after we had read excerpts from President Benson's talk on pride in class, including some of the passages we read earlier about competition and comparison, a student asked, then how am I even supposed to play sports? Admittedly, I didn't have any easy answers then, and I don't have any easy answers now. It is tough. But I do say that we shouldn't shy away from these crucibles of comparison where our character is forged, where we can really practice what we're talking about here. We can play sports and feel the thrill of our muscles stretching and responding as we're learning new skills and putting into action things that we've practiced. Our contest can be just with ourselves, and we can honestly celebrate the successes of others. We can take our exams in school without worrying how our grades compare to those of others, but instead measure ourselves only against ourselves and feel the thrill of calling on new knowledge to solve new problems. Okay, 
I admit that I might be waxing a bit too poetic about the thrill of celebrating new knowledge when we have to take school exams, but you catch my drift. We can play musical pieces or paint paintings or write stories and join in the joy that these expressions of talents and hard work will bring to others. Think of how Jesus freely used his talents and gifts to bless others over and over and over. This is not about hiding under a bushel. This is about not worrying how brightly our light shines in comparison with the person right next to us. This is about having pure motives, being purified even as he is pure. After all, Jesus is the very light that we want to hold up. And do we ever need this light? Does the world ever need this light? Why? Because we come to realize that everyone, to some degree or another, feels these insecurities. It is so vital that we reach to lift each other because everyone feels the weight of this, trying to pull them down. There's even a syndrome to describe this weight, imposter syndrome, this nagging sense that no matter what you've accomplished, sooner or later, someone will discover that you simply are not good enough, you don't belong, your qualifications really are a sham. In a world where that weight drags on everyone, we need people who respond to President Benson's call to conquer enmity toward our brothers and sisters, to esteem them as ourselves, to lift them as high or higher than we are. This whole endeavor is ripe with paradoxes, but as Terrell Givens has put it so aptly, as disciples of Christ, we are a people of paradox. And these very tensions, I think, can be so productive. The best way to remember that our contests are not with ourselves is to think less about ourselves. The best way to stop comparing ourselves with others is to think more of others. When we don't find easy answers, my hope and prayer are that the Spirit will teach us of these peaceable things of the kingdom, even when they are hard for us to articulate. There's no question that you and I are going to fail at many things we attempt to do. And in the eyes of those making comparisons, we are all repeatedly going to fall short. There is always a bigger fish, so to speak. You're going to get emails or voicemails or text messages, maybe even this very day, notifying you that someone else was hired for a job, that someone else was picked for the team, that someone is not interested in a second date, that someone else has been called as Relief Society president, etc., etc. But do not, do not take that as a mark of your worth. Disappointments do sting, but they can also be wonderfully, albeit painfully, formative. All things really can work together for the good of them that love God. But do not... Let the temptation to compare give these disappointments destructive power. These comparisons are counterfeits. They do not, cannot, adequately measure what really matters. When disappointments hit, we take a deep breath. We remember what really matters. I remember being very struck the first time I heard someone quote what President David O. McKay said about imagining our future interview with the Lord. Now, the Robert D. Hales quoted this in the BYU devotional in 1988. The focus of President McKay's hypothetical interview was the quality of our relationships with special attention on individuals in our immediate families. Pointedly, deliberately, President McKay stressed that the Lord will not ask about our professions, only our integrity. He will not ask for our resume of church callings, only our interest in ministering to others. These are the things that really matter. C.S. Lewis once proposed that we might think that God wanted simply obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. I would submit that this includes becoming the sort of people who slough off the tendency to compare just like water off the proverbial duck's back. We pay no heed. We're like Lehi in his dream. We pay no heed to those siren voices or those fingers of scorn. So with all of this said, in our quest to become people of a particular sort, how do we evaluate how we're doing? Well, not by comparing. This is another of those paradoxes. If we're not careful, we might fall into the trap that is just waiting for us around the corner. Can't you just hear yourself saying, I'm doing so well at this not comparing thing. I bet I compare myself to others way less than my roommate does. And here we go again. (laughs) 
One thing we all need is something that Elder Maxwell recommended in another classic must-read address, notwithstanding my weakness. Here's one of his recommendations to help manage what he called these vexing feelings of inadequacy. Quote, We can make quiet but more honest inventories of our strengths, since in this connection most of us are dishonest bookkeepers and need confirming outside auditors. I have to pause here to acknowledge deep personal gratitude for so many outside auditors in my life, especially my wife and my mother, who personify all that we've talked about today, who just are this way. We can be those all-important outside auditors that others need. I'm also confident that President Benson would say to us, just as he did in 1989, that we must be careful as we seek to become more and more godlike, that we do not become discouraged and lose hope. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit and very often involves growth and change that is slow, almost imperceptible. But we must not lose hope. The Lord is pleased with every effort, even the tiny daily ones in which we strive to become more like him. In tiny daily ways, then, we practice we purify our motives, and we pray with all the energy of heart that the Lord fill us with the love and grace that make our practice and our purifying efficacious until it feels as natural as breathing, as effortless as the love between parents and children, the love between siblings or lifelong friends. And lastly, we combat falsehood with truth. We see Korahor's lie and we raise it with the truth about the celestial kingdom, the kingdom where we will see as we are seen and know as we are known. Could we pray for clear glimpses of that in the here and now? Could we pray more to see others that way? Could our prayers and our comparisons stay riveted on how we're becoming new creatures in Christ, on how far his grace has taken us and can yet take us from our old selves? Here's one last story. I love this story as much as any story that has ever appeared in the new era. It's called The Visitor by Ken Merrill from the May 2000 issue. When I was 18, as I was preparing to serve a mission, my bishop called me to teach the sunbeams. One day I invited Mike to come to church and sit in my class. Mike was my age, but had stopped attending church completely by the time he was 12. We had remained friends over the years. Once in a while, Mike would accept my invitation to come to an activity. It always surprised me when he did, so I kept inviting him. At that time, Mike had long black hair and a beard. I don't remember when I invited him to my primary class, but one day he showed up. Class, I would like to introduce you to my friend Mike, is how I began the lesson. He is visiting us today. Mike sat next to me in the front. The children sat in a semicircle with their eyes fixed on him. They were much quieter than usual. Can you see where this is going? I was about five or six minutes into the lesson when one little boy got up from his chair and walked across the room and stood directly in front of my friend. Then it happened. With the innocence of a child, the boy said to Mike, Are you Jesus? (laughs) The look on Mike's face was total surprise. It seemed as I glanced at the children's faces, they all had the same question on their minds. (laughs) Mike looked at me as if to say, Help, what do I say? I stepped in. And I have to say, I think this is the lightning of inspiration. I stepped in. No, this is not Jesus. This is his brother. Mike looked at me as if in shock. Then without hesitation, the boy reached up and wrapped his arm around Mike's neck. I can tell, the boy said, as he hugged Mike. The author ends the story by saying that just over a year later, Mike was serving as a missionary. My guess is that he was reminded of something that day that he had not thought about for a very, very long time. So I say this to you and I say this to me. Let's all find a mirror. Let's look at ourselves. Let's see as we are seen. Let's repeat, my contest is not with anyone else. My contest is with myself. The race is against sin, not against each other. Then we pray with all the energy of heart to be filled with the pure love of Christ, of him who is the author and finisher of our faith. We refuse to let lies interrupt our rejoicing over the truths that are deeper and more convincing than the falsehoods of comparisons. And then we walk out the door, forget ourselves, and start concentrating on others. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.
You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is grappling with comparisons. We've just heard from J.B. Hawes. After the break, we'll return with Merrill J. Christensen for Comparing, Competing, and Individual Worth. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is grappling with comparisons. Next is Merrill J. Christensen, professor of nutritional science in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences at BYU at the time of this address, titled Comparing, Competing, and Individual Worth. In Dallin H. Oaks' much-quoted talk on dating versus hanging out, he said in his preliminary remarks, A message given by a general authority at a general conference is given to be heard under the influence of the Spirit of the Lord with the intended result that the listener learns from the talk and from the Spirit what he or she should do about it. No one is more aware than your speaker today that you are not, in this gathering, listening to a general authority at a general conference. However, I hope the same principle will apply, that something you hear in the words of the prophets and the scriptures we will consider this morning will impress upon your mind and heart something you personally should do about it. President Gordon B. Hinckley has repeatedly emphasized a harsh reality of which you are all aware. He has said, The world into which you move will be terribly competitive. You are moving into the most competitive age the world has ever known. All around you is competition. At the last General Conference, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said that our culture is obsessed with comparing and competing. This morning I would like to review with you certain principles taught in the scriptures and by living prophets that relate to comparing and competing, first in our academic and professional lives, then more generally in our personal lives. One way to deal with the academic and professional competition we face was recommended to me by my graduate advisor. He said, the most important thing you need to do is to impress the right people. I thought the gospel teaches us that we aren't supposed to do things to be seen of men, to call attention to ourselves, and aspire to the honors of men. And yet my advisor seemed to be saying that if I was going to succeed as a graduate student, that's exactly what I needed to do. Of course, there is truth in my advisor's observation. Obviously, if you don't impress the coach, you don't make the team. If you don't impress an employer, you don't get or keep the job. Many seek to impress and aspire to the honors of men by deliberately calling attention to themselves. Jesus chastised those in his time who did all their works for to be seen of men. President Boyd K. Packer said in April's General Conference, To seek after the praise of men, the scriptures caution us, is to be led carefully away from the only safe path to follow in life. And the scriptures warn us plainly what follows when we aspire to the honors of men. John recorded that in the Savior's day, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Those who love the praise of men more than the praise of God seek to please men more than God, fear to offend man more than they fear to offend God, and are more concerned with what others think of them than what God thinks. 
men's commendation and contempt can both lead us from the path of safety. In contrast, Jesus, speaking of his Father, said, I do always those things that please him. This is the only safe path to follow in life. Is it possible to impress the right people without aspiring to the honors of men or seeking to draw attention to oneself? Fortunately, not long after my experience with my advisor, I had the opportunity to pose that question to Elder Russell M. Nelson in a young single adult fireside. Elder Nelson thought for a moment, then said, If you are well prepared in everything you do, in school and professionally, and do the highest quality work of which you are capable, your work will speak for itself and the right people will be impressed. Speaking in the last general conference of music in the Church, but applicable almost universally, President Packer said, Excellence does not call attention to itself. It does not need to. As Elder Nelson taught in a fireside long ago, and as President Packer taught in general conference, excellence will be obvious to those who need to be impressed. I know from experience that is true. One such experience occurred three months ago with a graduate student at a professional meeting. He had worked many hours on wording, rewording, and crafting his talk to present as clearly as possible his data and conclusions. He had organized, reordered, and revised his slides to present plainly the most important information in a logical, easy-to-follow sequence. This preparation continued in his hotel room well into the night before his talk. At the end of his presentation, which was the last in that session, many scientists in the audience came to the front to greet him as he stepped down from the podium, to commend and congratulate him, and even offer to remain in contact regarding his future research. One woman, an official from the National Institutes of Health who administers research grants, pulled me aside from the group and said, This was tremendous. This is the way science should be done. The student in his preparation neither sought nor anticipated such praise. His goal was simply to make the best presentation and represent himself and BYU as capably as he could. To do the highest quality work of which you are capable sufficient to impress the right people, requires compliance with President Hinckley's counsel to get all the education you can. From the perspective of a nutrition professor, a college education is like a large buffet. You pay, then serve yourself as much as you want from a wide variety of foods. If after the meal you leave hungry, feeling you haven't gotten your money's worth, it's your own fault. How many of you are getting your money's worth, are getting all the education you can at the educational and spiritual buffet that is BYU? President Hinckley also said in speaking to priesthood leaders in a worldwide leadership training meeting, I have been quoted as saying, do the best you can, but I want to emphasize that it be the very best. We are too prone to be satisfied with mediocre performance. We are capable of doing so much better. Is a young man or woman really getting all the education they can if they are satisfied with mediocre performance? President James E. Faust gave this very reassuring counsel. If you prepare to walk down the path of life, you can be rewarded beyond your dreams and expectations. But to achieve this, you must work very hard, save, be wise, and be alert. You must learn to deny yourselves a worldly gratification Steadiness and toil will serve you better than brilliance. Thus, 
One key in dealing with academic and professional competition is to be well prepared to work very hard and do the very best of which you are capable, refusing to be satisfied with mediocre performance. To do so, as President Hinckley also urged, sacrifice a car, sacrifice anything that is needed to be sacrificed to qualify yourself to do the work of the world. I will mention just one other principle related to academic and professional competition. It is a sad sign of the times that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has had to organize an Office of Research Integrity whose sole purpose is to try to maintain honesty and credibility in biomedical research by combating the plagiarism and outright fabrication of data by the occasional scientist who buckles under the competitive pressure to publish or perish. In this environment, being a man or woman of integrity, rather than putting you at a competitive disadvantage among those who may be compromising standards of honesty, will work to your benefit. Here's how. At another professional meeting with a graduate student some years ago, we ran into the chair of the session in which the student had presented earlier. After a few pleasantries, this respected scientist said, you know what I like about your presentations? If it's from BYU, we know it's right and we can trust it. President John Taylor prophesied, you will see the day that Zion will be as far ahead of the outside world in everything pertaining to learning of every kind as we are today in regard to religious matters. You mark my words and write them down and see if they do not come to pass. It occurred to me that perhaps the fulfillment of President Taylor's prophecy might have as much to do with integrity and credibility as with publication and professional acclaim. As issues of integrity become more and more problematic in a cutthroat competitive society, those looking for answers will look more and more to institutions and individuals who get it right and can be trusted. Integrity is not a hindrance to your academic and professional success. It is essential to it. With respect to comparing and competing in our personal lives, Elder Holland counseled parents, try not to compare your children even if you think you are skillful at it. You may say positively that Susan is pretty and Sandra is bright, but all Susan will remember is that she isn't bright and Sandra that she isn't pretty. Praise each child individually for what that child is and help him or her escape our culture's obsession with comparing and competing and never feeling we are enough. It is difficult to refrain from comparing yourself to others when you know that professors, employers, and others are doing just that. However, a spirit of comparing and competing may be evidence of the sin of pride. President Ezra Taft Benson, in his classic talk on pride, said, another major portion of this very prevalent sin of pride is enmity toward our fellow men. We are tempted daily to elevate ourselves and diminish others. Those who view their contemporaries as competitors to be beaten rather than brothers and sisters to be served often believe that others' success diminishes their own and are therefore more apt to find and point out faults of those around them. Such critics run the risk of losing friends who may wonder what the critic says to others about them. In contrast, we are commanded not only to cease to find fault with one another, but also to strengthen your brethren in all your conversations. President Benson also said, the proud make every man their adversary by pitting their intellects, opinions, works, wealth, 
talents, or any other worldly measuring device against others. In the words of C.S. Lewis, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. A person who compares and considers herself superior in some way may feel an unjustified sense of accomplishment and expertise. However, the highest score on an exam does not necessarily indicate mastery of the material. If she is satisfied with simply being better than someone else, she may, in the words of President Hinckley, be too prone to be satisfied with mediocre performance when she is capable of doing so much better. Such complacence, born of comparison, may creep into spiritual matters as well. It is tempting in a rapidly decaying world to consider ourselves righteous in comparison to what's going on around us. However, there is a danger in assessing our spirituality using such a relative measure. The Lord's standard is high, absolute, and unchanging. The world is rapidly becoming a more wicked place. If we are content to simply be better than the world, comparing ourselves to its standards and practices instead of the Lord's, we may pride ourselves on the widening gap between us and the world, while at the same time being dangerously oblivious to the increasing distance between us and the standards of righteousness we have covenanted to keep. Discouraging comparison of our weaknesses with others' talents or of our talents with those truly gifted, as we've seen this morning, may lead to the sins of envy and ingratitude as we focus on and fret about what we don't have rather than what we have been given. Compulsive comparison can rob us of the enjoyment we might still experience in the expression of the talents we have been given and in those of others. The ability to rejoice in the successes and talents of others increases our capacity for happiness and joy as we experience those feelings each time someone we know succeeds. Preoccupation with what others are doing, how they're performing, how they're being rewarded or treated starts early in life with children often asking, how come she gets to, or why doesn't he have to? Most outgrow the terminology, but for many, the preoccupation persists. Focusing on others' talents and tasks, worrying about what rewards they may be receiving, and feeling we're in competition for that recognition, may easily distract us from our own responsibilities, inhibit the developments of our talents, and divert us from our personal missions and ministries. In the last chapter of the Gospel of John, we read of Jesus' charge to Peter as they walked along the seashore. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. The message to Peter and to us is clear. Don't concern yourself with others' assignments or performance. You worry about what I've asked you to do. While serving as a stake missionary, I had the assignment of going each Sunday to the Utah County Jail to teach a Sunday school lesson seated on folding chairs in the hallway under the watchful eye of surveillance cameras. The favorite Bible story of those who came to class was the parable of the talents. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, 
to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several, meaning individual, ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredst unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You know what happened to the last servant. The things the inmates liked the most about this story were that the first two servants got the same reward, and the Lord didn't compare them to one another. Among other lessons, this parable reinforces the principle that where much is given, much is expected or required, and where less is given, less may be required. To each of us, the Lord might say, as he did to Moses, I have a work for thee, my son or my daughter. Just as the Lord in the parable gave talents and set expectations for each servant individually, so also does he provide for each of us a unique blend of talents and circumstances, including formal church callings and other opportunities, individually customized to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the lives of those we can bless. Elder Neil A. Maxwell assured us no one else is placed exactly as we are in our opportune human orbits. When the Jews faced extermination in Persia, the Jewish queen Esther's uncle Mordecai reminded her, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So might it be asked of each of you, Who knoweth whether thou art come to your particular place and circumstances with your unique blend of talents and abilities for such a time as this. The work the Lord has for us to do may not involve serving in high-profile positions in the church, sadly a source of comparison and competition to some, but that is of less significance. Speaking of our church callings, President Hinckley said, We are all in this great endeavor together. Your obligation is as serious in your sphere of responsibility as is my obligation in my sphere. No calling in this church is small or of little consequence. All of us, in the pursuit of our duty, touch the lives of others. In the first general conference to which I paid serious attention, Elder Robert L. Simpson said something that has stuck with me ever since. There are those who associate high calling in the church with guaranteed rights to the blessings of heaven. But I wish to declare without reservation that the ultimate judgment for every man will be on the simplest terms and most certainly on what each has done to bless other people in a quiet, unassuming way. Blessing other people in a quiet, unassuming way is required of all of us who have covenanted to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, to mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. This blessing other people in a quiet, unassuming way 
is part of what the Young Women's Personal Progress Manual calls my own divine mission in describing the value of individual worth. Sister Bonnie Parkin, former Relief Society General President, in her devotional talk last February, echoed the theme of my own divine mission when she said, Each of us has a personal ministry. It embraces the people who come and go across the path of our life. It extends beyond our temporary callings as presidents, counselors, secretaries, teachers, and so on. Our personal ministry is sacred and precious. It allows us to become an extension of the Lord's love. Our personal ministry may not bring to us the recognition and the praise of men. However, it will require the exercise of all the talents and spiritual gifts the Lord has given us, as well as those he has given us capacity to develop. Many of the more notable spiritual gifts are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Moroni chapter 10, Doctrine and Covenants section 46. However, those are not the only gifts. While showing and discussing this list in an institute class, one young woman asked, What's the gift to weep? Another class member hesitatingly raised her hand, then said quietly, I can tell you about that. She then made reference without specific details to an extremely trying time in her life. During that time, a friend came by to offer what help she could. The class member said that after describing her difficulties to her friend, all the friend could do was put her arm around her shoulder and weep. Our class member was blessed by her friend's exercise of the gift to weep, which showed that she shared her sorrow, which made the burden a little lighter. There are many possibilities to answer Elder Oak's question about what each of us should do about today's message. We can pray with all the energy of heart to be filled with charity, which envieth not, vaunteth not itself, and seeketh not her own. We can try making it through an entire day without a single self-reference that draws attention to ourselves. We can pray, as Sister Parkins suggested, help me to be the answer to someone's prayer, or, as Elder Henry B. Eyring urged in General Conference, please let me serve this day. We can resolve to sincerely compliment someone each day, to thank someone each day, or try to go a day without finding fault. In closing, let me suggest a scripture that helps me and I hope will help you to remember this morning's message. President Benson said, The constant and most recurring question in our minds, touching every thought and deed of our lives, should be, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? In many cases, our interpretation of scriptural passages depends on which word or words we emphasize. If this question is read and remembered as asking, What wilt thou have me to do? It will help us to focus on God's will, his honor, his praise, and his blessings, and distinguish them from those of men. If we ask, What wilt thou have me to do? It will remind us of our uniqueness, our individual and infinite worth, our own divine mission. Our Heavenly Father expects us to accomplish regardless of what others perform. If we ask, What wilt thou have me to do? It will remind us to translate our good intentions and what we know into righteous action. I do not have the ability to impress upon your minds and hearts as powerfully and indelibly as I desire the glorious reality that each of you individually 
is of infinite worth to God, your Heavenly Father. Your value to Him is independent of your body mass index, your accomplishments in arts, academics, or athletics, your possessions, popularity, or marital status, your current calling in the church, or any other thing which can be a source of comparison and competition. His love for you is infinite, quantitatively and qualitatively, and intimate, intensely personal and specific. He knows your name, your successes and setbacks, your triumphs and defeats, your fears, your doubts, your hopes, your desires, your motivations, your thoughts, words, and actions. He feels what you feel. He shares your joys and sorrows. He desires your happiness now and forever. May you seek the praise of God and do always those things that please Him. May you cease unhealthy comparison to others and delight in your individuality and uniqueness. May you be faithful in your church assignments and in your individual personalized ministries, your own divine missions, using your unique blend of talents and spiritual gifts to bless other people in a quiet, unassuming way. I testify that God our Heavenly Father lives. I bear testimony that Jesus Christ is his Son and the head of this church. I testify that the mind and will of the Lord are made known to us in the words of living prophets and apostles, that includes the counsel we have considered this morning. Of these things I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Grappling with Comparisons with thoughts from J.B. Haas and Merrill J. Christensen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.